Welcome to the Liquid Church Podcast, a place where you can hear the timeless truth of God's Word in a way that's culturally relevant and cutting edge. Today, you're tuning in for our special series, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, an eight-week journey designed to help you develop a deeply rooted spirituality in Christ. It's our hope this message will help you discover how God's story relates to your own and that you will leave feeling encouraged. Thanks for joining us today and enjoy the message. There's so much more to your story than what's on the surface. God is calling you to dive deeper, to see how your joys, losses, dreams, and experiences have shaped you. What will the Holy Spirit speak to your soul? through Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. All right, what's up, church? Hey, let's give a big welcome to Church Online, all our live locations. Great to see you guys. Glad you're here for week three of our series, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. I'm Pastor Tim. Hope you're enjoying this eight-part discipleship series that our small groups are going through this fall. Uh, As always, I love talking with so many of our small groups over Zoom on Tuesday night. I hope you guys have had some very robust and meaty conversations in your group this week. Um, Today, we're going to talk about the FOO factor. FOO, F-O-O. It stands for Family of Origin. Uh, We had baby dedications at some of our locations today, and I want to talk about how God's choice to birth you into the family you grow up in has a huge influence on your discipleship as a follower of Jesus. Now, you guys probably know this. Our families are probably the single biggest factor in shaping who we become as adults. And so if I asked you to show me a photo from your childhood, what would you tell me to describe the family you grew up in? Let me show you a photo of mine. I'll show you, I'll show you mine if you show me yours. This is my family photo from the 1900s. Okay, 1900s. It's 1973. I was two years old. My father, Del Lucas, in the snazzy blazer, black sideburns. My mom, Elaine Lucas, with the amazing Brady Bunch hairdo. That is what you call a bouffant, by the way. It explains a lot, doesn't it? That's my older brother, Ted, on the right. He's five years older than me. And there's your pastor, little Timmy Lucas, who looks like Nicholas from Eight is Enough. You're welcome. Um, I was blessed to grow up in a very uh, loving, loving family. Warm home, lots of affection, great taste in couches, as you can see. Uh, Both my parents were strong believers. My father was a first-generation Christian, very humble man. Um, For him, integrity was like the highest value in life. I I never actually heard my father curse. He never drank a beer, never actually raised his voice. Neither did my mom, uh, because our family was Dutch. We We don't do big emotions, okay? Now, my wife Colleen's uh, foo, her family of origin is Italian and Irish, so they do a lot of hand gestures, a lot of loud emotion. Hey, I'm talking to you, okay? But if there was a problem in our home, things got very quiet. If you were angry, you did what we called the silent snit. You stopped talking to others instead of turning up the volume. It was kind of our, our very charming, passive-aggressive way of handling conflict. Uh, but all in all, my family was a blessing. My parents genuinely loved Jesus, my brother and me. We went to church every Sunday. And if there was any pressure, like when I look at our family, it was to make sure our family looked like, man, we got it all together when we walked into church. Everybody look good? Hair in place? Big smiles. Everybody, here we go. Yeah. It was great until I became a teenager and I looked around our church and realized most people don't have their crap together. Like people had all sorts of problems, busted up marriages, kids drinking, doing drugs. People had anxiety and depression. But 
We're like, we don't really engage with other people's problems. We have our stuff together. So we could feel sympathy. We could offer advice. Here's some verses that might help you. Maybe a little side dish of judgment, but not really emotionally engage with broken people. And so it was hard because as, as I got older, I was 100% certain that mom and dad loved me, no doubt. I understood God loved me. I understand Jesus died for me, but I felt like I had to perform and achieve and show it was worth it. You know, that was kind of part of our family dynamic. It's kind of performance-based approval. So early on, when I first became a pastor, I preached about grace, but I lived under the law. <laughs> I could tell you that God's love is unconditional, but I rarely rested because I believed, man, my performance is tied to my worth as a person. Oh, man, that was, that was deadly as a young pastor. Those of you who knew me 25 years ago, I'm so sorry. I apologize, but I am a recovering approval addict. But God is still at work in me, and he's still at work in you. Amen? Again, that's my family. How about yours? See, a key part of emotionally healthy spirituality is understanding how your family dynamics shape you, for better and worse. So can we talk about your foo, your family origin? The truth is God chose to birth you into a specific family, in a specific place, and at a specific moment in history. And that gifted you with certain opportunities but also had you some emotional baggage, right? Like here's some patterns and habits and broken ways of relating and doing conflict, handling hurt. Now for some of us, that extra baggage from our family, it's like, you know, a little, it's like a little purse. It's kind of minimal. For others, it's like an American tourister. You're like, yeah, I know about family baggage, okay? Today's big idea is that a deeper walk with God requires all of us to go back in order to go forward. If you're going to live as your true self, if you're going to walk in true freedom in Christ, it requires actually breaking free from some of the broken patterns of the past in order to live a new life of love in the family of Jesus. So I'm kind of curious right now, how would you describe your family growing up? Like what one or two words? You know, if, would you be like warm and affirming like yours, Tim? Or would it be like, no, 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 kind of critical, intense. It was tense in my house. Were, we, were you competitive or cooperative? Were you guys close? Was there like a little bit of distance? Fun and playful? We're strict and serious, a lot of rules. Now understand something. When the Bible uses the word family, it means your entire extended family over three or four generations, not just your parents. Your brothers, sisters, uncles, aunts, grandparents, great-grandparents going all the way back to the 1800s. That's how the Bible defines family. And the power of your family going back three or four generations is really the most powerful influence shaping who you are today. And there is a biblical reason for that. In the book of Exodus, chapter 20, when God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses, God said, hey, there's something you should know about me. This Exodus 20, verses 5 and 6, it says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I want to be number one. And I punish the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, anybody have a little problem with this verse? <laughs> I struggle a little bit with it because I'm like, why? That doesn't seem fair. Why would God punish the children for the sin of their parents dating back like three or four generations, right? Like it doesn't, doesn't seem right to punish, you know, the kids for something the previous parents did. But then I learned the meaning of the Hebrew word punish here doesn't mean guilty. It means there are consequences that repeat themselves. In other words, the sins of the parents that happen in one generation tend to repeat themselves in future ones. So according to God's words, what happens in one generation often repeats itself 
in the next. I'm going to put that on the screen. It's a big truth. What happens in one generation often repeats itself in the next. Now, we see that reality play out all the time, right? I mean, it's very common. You can think of families where you see patterns repeating from one to the next. Things like divorce and alcoholism, addictive behavior, sibling rivalry, poor marriages, runaway children, pregnancy out of wedlock, sexual abuse, broken relationships. And scientists debate whether that's a result of nature, that is our biological DNA, or is it nurture, you know, your environment condition. Personally, I think it's probably both. But the Bible makes clear the blessings and sins of our families going back two, three, four generations often repeat themselves. Again, look at Exodus 20. This is kind of fascinating. Punishing the children for the sins of the parents, the third and fourth generation, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. In other words, it's not just the influence of your mom and dad, but their mom and dad and, 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 and your grandpa and then your great-grandpa that plays a powerful role in shaping how you look at life and do relationships today. Which explains a lot, right? Like, have you ever met a Christian or someone at church like, who seems very sweet and sincere about their faith? Like, you ever met a guy who's you're just like, man, that dude really loves Jesus? But then you notice, like, if he's ever challenged or, like, you know, corrected by somebody, he instantly gets defensive or like, I don't know why you're coming at me, like explodes in anger. And you're kind of like, bro, where did that come from? The reality is he may have Jesus in his heart, but he's got grandpa in his bones. Anger is just how our family deals with criticism. My dad had an anger problem. His father had a big temper. Everybody knew grandpa would just like, boom, explode like a rocket if he drank too much. I mean, we're Italian. What do you want? Right? See, the patterns of your family exert a very powerful influence. It's kind of like this invisible magnet. The gravitational pull is so strong. You may not even be consciously aware of it, but some of us react and get triggered in ways we don't even know why until we look under the iceberg at our family history. So if you've got grandpa in your bones, getting Jesus into your heart takes a lot of work. If you're going to live free into God's future, you've got to break patterns from the past, which requires all of us to go back in order to move forward. Now, in Scripture, Joseph and his family are probably the best example of this. And that's who we're going to look at today. So if you have your Bible open to the book of Genesis, it's easy to find. It's the first book in the Bible. 25% of Genesis is the story of Joseph. It's the origin story of one family, how God told one man named Abraham. God said, hey, you're going to be the father of a lot of nations. And that blessing passed on to his son Isaac and then to his son Jacob. And then that generational blessing passed on to Abraham's great-grandchildren, that's Joseph right there, and his brothers, 12 tribes of Israel. But just like blessings can be passed from one generation to the next, so can brokenness and sin. For example, in Joseph's family history, if you go through Genesis, there's a repeating pattern of lying and deceit in every generation. Abraham lied about his wife, Sarah. Jacob lied to almost everybody. His name means deceiver. Joseph's brothers lie about his death. They fake their brother's funeral, keep a family secret for more than 20 years. There was favoritism in his family line. Abraham favored Ishmael, Isaac favored Esau, Jacob favored Joseph, which made his brothers jealous. Parents, by the way, pro tip, playing favorites, toxic. Every child has their own unique temperament and personality, glories and weaknesses, and you can't just treat them the same. There are cutoffs in this family line. Siblings become estranged and stop talking with each other. Some of you know what's like. You have people in your family who are estranged, right? Isaac and Ishmael were cut off. Jacob and Esau were cut off for years. And Joseph was estranged from his brothers for more than a decade. 
And there are dysfunctional marriages in each generation. Abraham had a kid out of wedlock with Hagar. Isaac had a terrible relationship with his wife. And then check this out. Joseph's father, Jacob, had two wives and two concubines. Think of that dynamic in the home. Two wives, two girlfriends, same house. Good luck with that, okay? <laughs> the Bible is clear, guys. What I'm saying is there's no such thing as a perfect family, okay? Right from the opening pages of Genesis, there's dysfunction that must be overcome by the power of God. So don't feel bad. We all got stuff to work on, amen? But this is what makes the story of Joseph so hopeful. Because with all this jacked up family drama, Joseph still trusted in the sovereign hand of God. That his God was still good, he was still loving and working behind the scenes to redeem Joseph's family history. And as you're going to see, he overcame these incredible hurts with radical forgiveness and became a blessing to his family and entire nation. So this is a story of hope. I want you to leave with hope today. Let's read Genesis chapter 50, which is the climax of Joseph's family story. And then we'll talk about how it relates to yours. Already Here it goes. Verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us? What if, what if he pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you're to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now, please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. And when their message came to him, Joseph wept. So Joseph was a man in touch with his emotions. He had a lot of grief and sadness about his family history. In fact, look at this ancient mosaic of Joseph. I always love to go show you guys art. I think it reveals something. You can see Joseph is one of 12 brothers. They're bowing down to him. And Joseph was his father's favorite child. And because of that, they were jealous they threw Joseph in a pit and sold him off as a slave to Egypt. They told their dad that he died and never expected to hear from him again. But when Joseph got to Egypt, you see him wearing the Pharaoh crown there, things got crazy. First, he was falsely accused of rape. He spent a decade in prison. So Joseph had a lot of reason to be bitter about the damage his brothers inflicted. But over and over the Bible, you're going to see, says, but God was with Joseph. Whether he was in the pit or prison, he never lost confidence that God was with him working for his good, even though he couldn't perceive at the time. And if you know the story through God's miraculous intervention, Joseph was actually pulled out of prison and promoted to the second most powerful person under Pharaoh. That's why, again, look at the mosaic. You see how he's taking off his, his Pharaoh crown there? It's him kind of revealing his identity to his brothers after being estranged for 20 years. They're actually in Egypt begging for food because there's a global famine. So this is a key moment. Joseph can finally take revenge on his family for making his life hell. Verse 18 says this, his brothers then came. They threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Now this is a beautiful verse. I want to read this out loud together. Here we go. Big loud voice, church. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. Generational blessing. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Verse 20 is really a summary of Genesis. You intended to harm me. You want to, you want to crank me up. But let me tell you something God intended for good. It's a summary of the whole gospel. It gives us this incredible picture of how God can redeem our broken family histories, even the messed up parts. 
understand something, guys. I'm going to level with you. Nobody emerges from their family of origin unscathed, okay? There's always wounds. There's always damage. There's always scars. There are no exceptions, okay? But the hope of the gospel is that when we come to Jesus Christ, when we become a Christian, and if you're not one, I hope you will become one today. The Bible says you are born again. That's the phrasing that uses. Now, think what all that term means, born again. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you are reborn into a brand new family, the family of God. You actually have a new father, right? Your father in heaven. The Bible says you're adopted into the family of God. And then you get new brothers and sisters. You get a new inheritance in heaven. You get a new name. You're a Christian or a Christ follower. But although you're still in the new family of Jesus, here's the thing. You still have unprocessed patterns of relating that date all the way back to your foo, your family origin. Things happened that shaped you while you were growing up. So you're born again into this new family of Jesus, but you still have old values, perspectives, and habits that you were taught by your earthly family. It's like a blueprint was written, a script was handed to you. This is how we do relationships. This is how you view the world. This is where your self-worth comes from. And all that is deeply shaped by your family of origin, both the good and the bad. But the hopeful news of Christianity says that, guess what? Your family of origin doesn't determine your destiny. God does. When you become a Christian, the blood that determines who you really are is not the blood of your family. It's the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen? It gives you a brand new identity as a child of God. So maturing in the family of God, it means you're going to be like Jesus. I'm going to have to crucify the old patterns of my past, the toxic, broken, sinful parts, so you can be set free to be who God the Father uniquely created you to be, alive, free, healthy, living to the new values of God's family. So to move forward in Christ, you've got to go back. You've got to look under the iceberg to look at your foo. Remember the iceberg? Only 10% is visible above the surface, right? In other words, I think most people are only vaguely aware of about 10 percent of what's going on there. Like, this is what I see and observe happening. Most people suspect there's more going on below the surface, but they just don't know how to get at it. And that's dangerous. When you don't know your family dynamics under your iceberg, it's just like a sailor. You got to know the 90 percent under the water. That's what you got to be thinking about. Otherwise, you crash and sink. So emotionally healthy discipleship asks all of us, we're going to examine what's going on underneath this iceberg in our families. You know, here in Genesis 50, Joseph had a lot going on under his iceberg, yeah? His family history included a lot of trauma. Now, use that word, and let me define it for you. Trauma can be defined as an earthquake event in your life that has a lasting impact on your mental or emotional health. It's kind of a shock. That's what we call an earthquake. It, it, it shakes and shatters your sense of safety in the world. That's what we call an earthquake event. Now, some of us in this room experienced traumas in life. But Joseph had at least three in his family history that impacted him deeply. If you're taking notes, I'm going to highlight three traumas Joseph went through, and then the three steps he took to go back, asking God to heal that pain in his past in order to move forward in freedom. The first trauma Joseph endured, I think, is the worst. He was betrayed by his brothers. And you understand why. They were jealous, man. Joseph was daddy's favorite. He, he got, remember, he got the coat of many colors. He wears that one. It's like saying, I'm management. The rest of you punks are labor. <laughs> and Joseph was immature. He told his brothers, one day you guys are going to bow down to me. This is not smart if you have this dream, kids. And his brothers hated him so much, they hatched a murder plot. By the way, anybody here have tension like with a brother or sister, like growing up? Okay. Did they try to kill you? Okay. 
Joseph's brothers throw him in a cistern. That's what this is. It's a deep, dark well. might be 100 feet deep. And they left. They abandoned him. They left him. Can you imagine? Joseph is 17 years old. Imagine your brothers throw you into a deep, dark hole in the ground and leave you for dead. And you're sitting there in total darkness. Help! Help! Screaming. No one hears. You're screaming in the darkness for days. No one comes. That's trauma. So Joseph had betrayal. He had abandonment in his bones. The second trauma is when Joseph is sold into slavery. Some Egyptian merchants come along and they sell him a slave for two years' wages. And this is actually the first mention of human trafficking in the Bible. Did you know that? Joseph is trafficked as a teenager. He's cut off from his family, taken captive, trafficked to another country. And he loses everything. He loses his father, his family, his culture, his land. He loses his language. Any feeling of security or support is just ripped out of his life. He loses his friends, his freedom. His whole future is lost. You talk about trauma. Imagine the trust issues Joseph carried around. Like, who, who can I trust? I can't even trust my own family. He had three traumas. Betrayed by brothers, sold to slavery. And the third trauma is he spent a lost decade of his life in prison. Joseph spent somewhere between 10 and 13 years for a crime he didn't commit. In Egypt, he actually went to work for a bigwig named Potiphar, became his chief of staff. And Potiphar's wife noticed, this is kind of a fun verse, Potiphar's wife noticed this, it says this, Joseph was well-built and handsome. Time out. Does this remind you of any pastors you know? And she said, come to bed with me. Now, in all this drama, Joseph was still faithful to his God. So he said, no, I'm not going to betray my God or my master. He rejects her advances, and so she lies and accuses him of rape. Welcome to Egypt. Joseph actually experiences sexual harassment on the job, and because he has no power, he's thrown in prison even though he's innocent. You ever been accused of something you didn't do? Okay, maybe. You ever go to prison for it? Prisons are no picnic, guys. I mean, now, imagine in Bible times, Joseph is locked away for a decade of his life. Ten years rotting in his cell. Your family thinks you're dead. No one's looking for you. Imagine day after day, year after year, I'm sitting in that cell. I bet he had a lot of time to think. And at some point, Joseph probably wondered, God, is there something wrong with me? What did I do to deserve all this pain and trauma, God? Some of you know that feeling. Like you, you look at your story and you're like, there must be something wrong with me for all this screwed up stuff to happen in my life. So here's Joseph, right? You talk about carrying heavy baggage from your family. I mean, can you beat Joseph's story? Okay. By Genesis 50, you have to be like, how can this guy move forward? Age 30, his life's like a tragedy. How do you take blow after blow after blow in life, all this trauma, the earthquake events, shatter his safety and self-worth, anything he had in the world? Now, guys, I pray you didn't have this level of trauma in your family growing up. But we all have baggage, all right, that God wants to redeem. He wants to heal. He wants to restore like he did with Joseph but you have to invite Jesus under the iceberg to transform it. Because here's the secret. If you don't transform your pain, you will inevitably transmit it. Pain that isn't transformed gets transmitted, meaning you pass it on to future generations. So you have to be brave. You have to invite God to transform that pain, and he will. I know some of you are like, well, I don't, you know, I thought, I was like, I want to show you how this looks like in real life. So I invited Pastor Karen Shannon to come out and share for a few moments about her family of origin. Would you guys welcome Pastor Karen? 
Thanks for coming out, Karen. Hey, Tim. Have a seat on the couch. Sure. <laughs> Those of you who don't know Pastor Karen, she's our pastor of discipleship. She oversees our small groups, but you're also a trained Christian counselor, correct? I am. I am. Now tell us a little bit about your family of origin. Sure. Uh, so where yours was very functional, uh, ours was the opposite. In fact, if you looked up the definition of dysfunction, it's probably my family. I'm sure you'd see <laughs> this family portrait there. Uh, that's us in our glory. I was in sixth grade here. We were raised Roman Catholic. That's me with a yellow dress and the little corsage on my uh, dress. Uh, but that's, I have five brothers and sisters and my mom and dad. Uh, my dad was first generation Italian American, and he was close with his family of eight children who were really my aunts and uncles, wonderful to us. But my dad was an alcoholic and emotionally abusive. And my mom was this farm girl from Ohio who was plunged into this life that she didn't understand or want. Uh, she struggled to cope with five children and overbearing emotionally abusive addict for a husband, and a lot of financial challenges. My dad was very unstable. His temper could change like that. You did not know what would trigger his wrath. It was very unsafe. For the most part, we were left, the five of us, to figure out life on our own. Uh, as children of alcoholics often are, I've learned. Uh, we were ultra-responsible, good students, did everything we could, but very codependent. Now, some people say it's like our family of origin hands us a script. Like, here are your lines. This is how we, the story we're telling, the values, the messages that we learn to live by. What were some of the messages handed to you by your family? So it's interesting, Tim. My father in, it just ingrained on us that family was above everything. But what happened in the family, in the house, stayed in the house. There was chaos. There was confusion. Lots of cursing, lots of drinking. Uh, but when we went out, no one knew. Even my aunts and uncles didn't know. We looked like the perfect family. By the way, this is interesting, guys. The number of secrets in a family is often an indicator of its health or its sickness. And we were pretty sick, I will say. Um, pain and weakness in our home, not tolerated. Uh, we were ridiculed or punished for getting hurt or crying or even being scared. Uh, I learned that the way to have conflict was to scream and yell. And then if you didn't get your way, you cut people off. You got the silent treatment. Um, at one point, my dad and I didn't speak to one another for four years. And there were seven of us living in a five-room apartment. We four bumped years. into each other like all the time. Just He would just look the other way. And I just want to say the silent treatment is one of the worst ways to treat people because it makes them feel as if you wish that they were dead or didn't exist. So I, I mean, I know this is sensitive, but were there any traumas or, or you know, as what we're calling earthquake events in your life? Yeah, um, I think there's so many. I can't even get to all of them. Oh, we don't two. have enough time. What are two? Yeah, uh, my parents fought a lot. And when they were fighting, especially when my dad was drinking, he would come home, had been drinking. Uh, we would all be laying in bed, my siblings and I, and we would be wondered often, uh, we'd wonder if dad would come and pull us out of the bed and then we would be in 
involved in the fighting. He'd hit us, throw things at us. It was like a battle. My parents threatened to split up many times, which we often think, why didn't they? Might have been better, actually. Um, but then they got back together. And then one of uh, the most traumatic things was when I was three or four, one of my uncles used to expose himself to my sister and I during family parties. Um, we never told my mom about it. Uh, until later when we were older and uh, we never talked about it again except my parents used to say this is one of those messages don't let uncle I'll call him John in the house when we're not home don't let him in the house so that's incredible you're a little kid what what messages did did you kind of internalize from those trauma yeah one of the things that I realized much later wasn't right away is that um, it was up to us as children to protect ourselves and we actually raised one another um, and then for the abuse it was interesting it wasn't until this most recent round of VHS that we did in the spring that I made a connection to my uncle's abuse um, by my parents not by my parents telling us don't let Uncle John in the house, um, I realized it was up to me, the child, to be responsible to protect myself from an adult abuser. Kind of crazy, right? Um, to my knowledge, my uncle was never confronted by my parents or told to stay away. It was up to us, the victims, the children, to protect ourselves from harm. I carried a lot of shame and guilt for many years uh, over that until the Lord gently revealed this to me. So, so how did those negative messages, how, how did, you know, we talk about them repeating, how did they carry into your adult life as a, as a wife then, as a mother? Yeah, I wish it didn't happen this way, but when Bob and I got married 42 years ago, uh, I quickly realized I was in the same kind of marriage uh, that my mother and father had. Bob had issues with alcohol right away, uh, found that out, and I realized my past was going to be my present if real change didn't come soon. Uh, Bob's family never dealt with conflict, didn't even yell, more like your family, don't talk about it. So I try and talk things through, and then when he couldn't talk about stuff, I get really frustrated and give him the silent treatment and not speak with him until I cooled off. He received that as abandonment and moved farther away from me. So communication was really hard for us because we didn't have it modeled. That is, with such you know, chaos and, and, and abuse, uh, how did that affect your parenting as then as a mom? Yeah, I think this is common for adult children of alcoholics. Um, we definitely had a lack of control in our home. And with the abuse, it was kind of the worst thing that could have happened, happened. And so when that happens, we over control, we kind of overcompensate. And I was a helicopter mom. I was way too overprotective with my own children. Um, I tried to let them know how much I love them, that I'd always be there for them, um, but it suffocated them. And I definitely put too much pressure on them, especially my oldest son. Brilliant, athletic, independent, but I pushed him way too hard. And it fractured our relationship when he was a teenager. It was, there was a few rough years there. But now tell us about the hope, because how did Jesus reveal some of these broken patterns to you and then begin replacing them with the truth of God? Happily, uh, my, uh, when we came to faith in Christ, Bob and I, we learned about grace, but it seemed too good to be true. I kept trying to earn it, but God showed me the shame and the guilt under that iceberg that I carried from all the secrets, all the silence in our family. My dad's alcoholism, the abuse, 
And God, in his loving kindness, reminded me that those things were not my fault and to actually bring them to him. Uh, you guys are going to be reading Thomas Keating in our daily office, the day-by-day book this week. And he has a great quote in there where he says um, that God, the Holy Spirit, is like a divine archaeologist digging through the layers of our lives. Think about that. Allowing Jesus to be that archaeologist, give him uh, access to excavate the past. It's like those layers of an onion, right, where we want to go through them layer by layer and allow Jesus uh, to reveal those places where I was living out of a false sense of insecurity, false shame, false guilt, all false guilt, all those things that I carried that I was experiencing. It actually hindered my relationship. That's one of the things I learned. It hindered my relationship with God and then around people, especially my amazing husband who has been so patient with me. Um, It was hard work, but asking the Lord to help me believe that Jesus could love me, just that Jesus could love me, took a lot of years. I had to learn that the forgiveness I had been given by Christ uh, has to be extended to others. Now that's so important because that whole idea of surrendering to the process of God's refining work. Counseling plays a big part in this, huge. correct? It's huge. Absolutely. And I would say that if you've experienced trauma, those earthquake events, it is important to get counseling. We, you know, the Lord helps us to unpeel those layers of the onion. But if we're going to go the deep dive, if we're going to let the Spirit excavate those earthquake events by definition— shatter our world, and they disorient us. So you really need the help of a gifted counselor. And that's what's key to the healing process. Let me ask you this. How has God now rewritten your family script with scripture, with his word? Oh my goodness, Tim, I certainly wouldn't be sitting here right now with you if it wasn't for God's intervention. Uh, One of my life verses, Psalm 40, God took me from the muck and the mire, just plucked me out of that. He secured my feet on a solid rock and secured my path forward. Uh, One of the things that I had to learn was that the abuse wasn't caused by me. It wasn't my fault. And I had to release the shame that I carried as a result of it. Um, It was really hard work, but Jesus wanted to free me. And if abuse and trauma is a part of your story, Jesus wants to free you also. This is about freedom, guys, and forgiveness plays a huge role in that. How how did forgiveness play a role in moving past your family pain? Because that's a lot. Yeah, it was a lot. Uh, my parents, believe it or not, became believers uh, in their when I was in my 20s, and then Bob and I a little bit after that. And I'm thankful we were able to work through a lot of the damage from the past. And I not only forgave my mom and dad, um, I've asked forgiveness from my husband and my children, and with a lot of help from Jesus, uh, even the uncle who was abusing us, which was huge. He had already died, but I had to release the bitter root. I had a bitter root in my heart because of what he'd done to us. Um, and God worked powerfully to release that. And so it's been good. Bob and I have had, you know, our ups and downs like everyone, but we've been happily married for 42 years. We have great relationships with our children, their spouses, and our three grandchildren. I am really proud of them, Tim. Um, They're wonderful parents, so much smarter than Bob and I. And with God's help, they've broken so many of these generational patterns. And the other thing, God's allowed me, you know, you're talking about Joseph before, um, God's allowed me to transform 
transform some of that pain, some of that suffering as I became a pastor and a counselor. And I'm able to help people um, go through some of those traumas and bless them and help them in their healing. Last question, as a counselor, why why do you think people, I think Christians in particular, have a hard time like going back to go forward. I don't know if I want to dig all that stuff up. Why, do, why is that? You know, I think there's a lot of reasons, not just one. Often, I think it's just too painful. I have a lot of people that I counsel say to me, hey, I had to live through it once. Why would I ever relive it? Or I can't change the past. What's the use of going back? Yeah, I think, I think also what I've found is people kind of tend to hold their parents on a pedestal and feel like, man, it's disrespect. I don't want to say anything negative. I don't want to be disrespectful. But guys, you have to understand something. We don't look back to blame our parents or trash them. That's not the point. 99% of parents did the best they could with what was given to them, right? We're doing the best we can with what was given to us. Right. That's why we're saving for our kids' college and their therapy fund. We have two funds. It's really good. <laughs> but a lot of the things that hurt us, like criticism, rejection, are a result of what was passed on to them by their families of origin rather than reflection on their love for you, correct? And it is so true. And I think the other part that we have to remember is that most of us say we don't want to be like our parents, right? We don't want to raise our kids the same way. But the truth is that if we're not intentional about bringing all of this past, all of this junk to Jesus for healing, uh, we're going to repeat what we've been taught. In order to move forward, we have to break free from those destructive patterns of our past and live the new life of freedom that God intends. I love Galatians 5.1, another one of my favorite verses. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and don't let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Don't be burdened, right? Break free. Tim, you know this. We serve a God who has a whole family of messy stories. He's not <laughs> afraid to tell them in his word right. because they all point to, the, point to Jesus and his redeeming power. So friends, I, I hope that you can be encouraged. Your story is a kingdom story and God's waiting to redeem your story. Amen. Can I just thank you? Thank you for your courage, for your vulnerability, transparency. You are a precious gift to our whole church family. Can we thank Pastor Karen? Thanks, Tim. You are the lady. Thank you, my lady. Thank you. I give you a hug. I give you a hug on stage. (laughs) Guys, if you go back to Genesis, you know, in the story of Joseph, I'll tell you, he obviously had a pretty broken family. Uh, His life was filled with trauma, tragedy by age 30. And, you know, if anybody, you'd be like, man, Karen went through a lot. But some of you are like, I can relate. If anybody could have had a bitter root and rage, man, it was Joseph. But he didn't. He did the hard work of going back to go forward. And this is the hope I want to end on, friends. Remember, your family history is not your destiny. When Christ enters your life, God, your Father, adopts you, and he can actually reparent you. You know what that means? His Holy Spirit can teach you how to set healthy boundaries and deal with conflict in an emotionally healthy way. So I want to close with three practical steps that you can take like Joseph and to heal hurts, to carve healthy habits and walk in freedom. And the first step is this. Trusting God is actually guiding your life, both the good and the bad. You know, it's amazing. When all this horrible stuff happened to Joseph, Genesis repeats one phrase over and over. Look at this. I love this verse. But the Lord was what? With Joseph and showed him his faithful love. Even in his darkest days, when Joseph was in the pit, when he was in prison, God was at work behind the scenes 
orchestrating his sovereign purposes. Not just in the good stuff of your life. We always say, oh, I see God, you know, blessing me. God is working in spite of the bad stuff too. He can actually use this. Joseph says, God sent me to Egypt as part of his sovereign plan. Remember, when I say God is sovereign, you know what that means? It means he has all of history, human history, your family history in the grasp of his hand. And he works in ways that are hidden to us on earth. Now understand something. If you went through something, God didn't cause the trauma. He doesn't approve of it, but he says, I can use it. I can use it to bless others. The Lord was with Joseph and God is with you. Every mistake, every sin, every detour you hit in your journey can become a runway for God's blessing in the future. This is the only way, guys, Joseph could look back. 22 years later, he comes face to face with family members who abandoned and abused him. And he says these incredible words, you intended to hurt me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what's now being done, the saving of many lives. Do you notice Joseph doesn't minimize the trauma? He actually speaks the truth. He's like, you guys tried to hurt me. And that was wrong. That was evil. Understand something. Healing requires that we actually tell the truth about what happened. But you intended to harm me, but God. Everyone say, but God. He begged it for good to accomplish what's now happening, the saving of many lives. Joseph was in Egypt during a critical moment in a famine. And he says, I actually see the invisible hand of God moving in my life, even the broken parts. And he's boomeranging it to bless my family and the nation's. So that's the first step to healing. You have to trust God is guiding your entire life, both the good and the bad. The second thing Joseph teaches us is to grieve your losses. Verse 15 says, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? And when their message came to him, it says, Joseph, Joseph wept. Put that verse up. Joseph wept. It doesn't say cry. It says wept. There's a difference. Cry is what you do when you break your toe. Weep is what you do when you break your heart. Weeping is an expression of grief. And guess what? Grief is good. Good grief. Grief is a gift from God. So are tears. Salt water brings healing. Most of us don't want to go back and feel the hurt and pain of our past. I get that. But Joseph took the time to grieve what happened to him. In fact, Scripture says, Joseph wept so loudly, the Egyptians could hear him, and word of it quickly carried to Pharaoh's palace. He cried so loud, the whole palace heard. So Joseph didn't rationalize or justify the painful years. But how the honest grieving of his pain, he was able to forgive from the heart, like Karen said, that bitter root, and bless the brothers who betrayed him. And this is the, the third step, the key one. I'll end with this. You have to ask God to transform family pain with radical forgiveness. I mean, <laughs> let me tell you something. If that happened to me, man, you came to me 22 years later, you're begging for food. Think all Joseph could have said in this very moment when his brothers are begging on their knees. He could have stayed better and said, I'm not going to see those guys. He could have cut them off, stay estranged. He could, or he could, have, he could have powered up and I'm going to let you feel my wrath. Exploded in a rage. Now I got power over you. How do you like it? Or he could have taken revenge. He could have said, yeah, come on in, guys. Throw them in prison for 10 years. We'll see how they like it. But instead, look at his response. This is so beautiful. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. He reassured them. Am I in the place of God? I don't judge you. You intended to harm me. That's true. But God intended for good to accomplish what's happening, the saving of many lives. So then don't, don't be afraid. 
Watch this. I'll provide for you and your children. Translation, I'm breaking this generational dysfunction right here. It stops right here. Instead of paying you back for what you did to me, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you and your children. In other words, Joseph is looking forward to generations yet to come. He says, I'm taking leadership of my family. I'm setting a new pattern of health and blessing. He lets God transform his pain, and he forgives his family. And understand, this is not ordinary forgiveness. Like, oh, I forgive you. I'll let it go. This is a radical kind of forgiveness called grace. Grace is radical. Grace is not mercy. Mercy means I'm going to let you off the hook for what you did. But grace goes way further. It says, not only do I forgive you, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you something you don't deserve and you'll never pay back. God's radical love and kindness to his enemies. That's grace, friends. And it only comes from Jesus Christ. Understand, Joseph's story is a foreshadowing of Jesus. The same Jesus who was betrayed by those closest to him. Jesus was physically abused. He was beaten. He was falsely accused. He suffered even though he was innocent. And on the cross, he suffered the worst fate of all. He cried out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you what? Abandoned me. Tim, why should I trust Jesus? Because he can relate. Jesus suffered in your place. All of your sins and the sins committed against you. All that shame was heaped on Jesus. And he suffered and died so you could be forgiven, healed, and restored to life. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Amen? That's how Joseph forgives. And that's how you can forgive too. On the cross, Jesus looked at his abusers and he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Now, I understand you may say, Tim, if you knew my story, I could never forgive my family for what they did. You're right. You can't. Grace is supernatural. Only the Holy Spirit of Jesus living inside of you can empower you to do that. But friends, this is what breaks the chains of generational dysfunction. This is what sets captives free. Grace is fierce. Grace is aggressive. It doesn't repay evil for evil. It overcomes evil with good. The goodness of God. Amen. Give him a praise if you agree. I just pray today sparks a grace awakening for some of you. You may look at your broken life. You feel hopeless. But God says, I want to bless those who hurt you. I can heal your heart if you'll let me under that iceberg. Joseph let God's truth about his life transform the pain of his past. And don't forget this. Pain in your life that isn't transformed, it gets transmitted. It gets transferred. You pass it on. But Joseph said, no, it stops here. Don't be afraid. I'll provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. He's rewriting his family's script with scripture. So understand, you may have gotten negative messages from your family growing up. But let me just tell you something. Guys, God has a new message for you in Christ. In Christ, let me tell you something. You are beloved. <laughs> you, you are worthy. Your father looks at you and he delights in you. He loves you the way he loves his son, Jesus. You are lovable as you are. Nothing has to change for him to love you completely. You have nothing to prove because Christ did it all for you. So let God transform your pain and rewrite your family script with scripture. I, I wonder, what's one message from your family that God wants to replace with his truth this fall? I want to encourage you, be brave. As you go under the iceberg this week in your small group, don't be afraid. Remember this, generations are counting on you to do the deeper work of discipleship. And you're not alone in this. Jesus has gone ahead of you. The Holy Spirit lives inside you. Our church family is supporting you. Your small group surrounding you. And you may want to talk to a counselor in this season. 
who can help process your past. Let me tell you personally, my counselor has been so helpful to me over the last couple of years, just helping me trace God's hand in my story and carve new patterns of living and relating to others. Counseling may be the next step for some of you in this journey. So at every campus, I want you to know as you leave today, we have a list of Christian counselors who we've screened and vetted. And if you'd like a copy of that list, just talk to one of our pastors or our prayer team members after service ends. We'd love to pray with you and support you any way we can. Let's do this, church. Put your hands out. Let's pray. Just commit this part of our journey to God. Wow, Lord, this is heavy stuff. And so, Lord, I pray for these precious people, my brothers and sisters who suffered tragedies and traumas. Jesus, you know their hurts, and we're bringing them to you to transform. We don't want to transmit our pain. We ask you to transform it. In fact, right now, I just feel like led to to, to lead you in a prayer. For some of you who don't know God yet as your father, this is the moment to do that. Just pray out loud with me, church. Jesus, thank you for your healing love. Just say it with me. Jesus, thank you for your healing love. I ask you to come into my heart. Heal my hurts. God, be the perfect father I've always wanted. Forgive my trespasses as I forgive those who trespass against me. Adopt me in your family. Teach me to walk in grace, Jesus. I give my life to you today. Father, I thank you right now for our earthly families, everyone, for the blessings and the broken pieces. Holy Spirit, would you give us wisdom to learn from the past, but not be crippled by it. And may we, like Joseph, and our Savior Jesus, to whom he points, be a blessing to our earthly families and generations yet to come. In Jesus' name, everybody said together, amen. Thank you for joining us today. If you want to check out Liquid Church for a weekend service, small group outreach, or clean water trip, you can find out more about us online at liquidchurch.com. And if you enjoyed the podcast, go ahead and subscribe or share it with your friends. Thanks again for listening.